The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Several things started to happen. Persecution of the church chased a lot of the Jews out of the area of Jerusalem, and they spread all over the place, even leaving the area of Palestine that first ten years, as well as a couple of uh, severe famines that also chased people away. And as a result, you've got these believing Christian Jewish people that are scattered all over the place outside of Palestine 10, 15 years after Jesus went back to heaven with some of his last words being, I will come quickly, I will return again. And probably in their mind they're thinking, he'll be back next week. How exciting. Or in three days, like when he left the first time. Well, three days went by and a week went by, and now, wow, 10, 15 years has gone by, and these believers are scattered all over the place, and they're probably challenged and frustrated in many ways in their Christian life. And James knows that. He's their former pastor. And he's writing to encourage these Jews that are scattered and dispersed all throughout the area of Palestine. And that's what he does. And one thing that happened apparently from the content of the book of James is a lot of these believers just got kind of into a humdrum of a, a, a lull in their Christian life. A little bit callous. A little apathetic. And so he writes this letter to really give them a shot in the arm, reminding them of the zeal they once had and that they need to maintain during life, during life that is hard, during life that is filled with trials and temptations. And that's actually the theme of chapter 1. James is writing to them, reminding them to take action in light of living in the midst of trials and temptations. And we could say the same about us, can't we? That our life is filled with trials and temptations. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, he dealt with the trials of life that are common to us all. The trials of life, the external objective trials of life, uh, economic hardships, uh, just things we face day to day and week to week, uh, some small and some great, the trials of life uh, that make life difficult to live and could Put your faith to the test and James gives the believers commands. Well, in the midst of trials of life, two main things you need to do is consider it all joy and pray to God and ask Him for wisdom in the midst of it. Those were His two main commands in verses 2 through 12. In the midst of trials of life, consider it all joy because God is fine-tuning your faith. No pain, no gain. And in the midst of it, cry out to God for wisdom to help you in the midst of that trial. Now He transitions beyond trials to the temptations of life, which are actually common to all of us as well. And that's verse 13 and following. We introduced it last week. So we know what we're supposed to do in the midst of trials, and that is count it all joy, which is very difficult to do when we need supernatural strength to do it, and trust God and ask Him for wisdom. But what do we do in the midst of trials and face, I mean, temptations towards sin? How do we live in the light of sin and temptation? It's always all around us and in our midst. And so that's what James lays out here. So that's what we're going to look at here. Uh, And I call it the problem of evil. uh, Verses 13 through 15. Let me go ahead and read verses 13 through 18 to give us some context as he transitions now away from objective trials to now personal temptations toward sin. Verse 13, let no one say when he is is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, when He is when He is tempted, but each one is tempted when He is carried away and enticed by His own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. And so we're going to look in that context just primarily at verses 14 and 15, which I called the problem of evil. Uh, two weeks ago I had mentioned up here that there was a shooter on the loose in the city in which I live, Cupertino, California, and killed at least four different people randomly, shot and killed them. And then uh, over the next couple of days watching the news, and I knew it was inevitable as they're talking about the guy and interviewing people who knew him. Well, he, and people supposedly who knew him would say things like, well, he wasn't a violent man. And I'm thinking he just killed four people in cold blood. That sounds pretty violent to me. 
Uh, and then they also gave their, the, the commentators gave their social commentary on the whole thing, trying to figure out, well, why would somebody do this? Why would somebody do this? That was the big why. That's the problem of evil, trying to figure out why bad things happen, why people do bad things, primarily why bad things happen in life. The problem of evil, and the Bible's answer is very simple to the answer to the problem of evil, and that's sin, but the world doesn't recognize that. They don't even like to say the S word, sin. Uh, I just remember when the college student at West Virginia went on that rampage and killed all those students, and then the aftermath of all of that was, well, he, he killed all these people. It, actually, it wasn't his fault. Uh, and they had to find somebody to blame. I don't know if you remember that. Actually, it was the gun's fault. So let's ban guns. And then there was, well, it was society's fault. He was raised in a horrible society. He was isolated by other people. And then other psychologists, well, maybe it was his parents and the way he was raised. And so it's the blame game. It is incessant. That's what the world thinks. That's what they do all the time. Looking to blame somebody else all the time. Nobody wants to take personal responsibility for evil, for sin, for wickedness. And this verse, this passage, confronts that very issue head on. About why do bad things happen? Why do horrible things happen? And who is to blame when they do happen? We naturally, as humans, as fallen, as sinful, self-centered people, we naturally want to blame others for our faults. That just comes naturally. You get bad grades in school, who do you usually blame? As a student, uh, the knee-jerk reaction, oh, it was the teacher's fault, wasn't it? No, the subject was too hard. No, my parents made me go to that school. And on and on it goes. And the, just the excuses come galore. Because we just got to blame everybody else all the time. We did not invent the blame game, by the way. It has been around for... At least 6,000 years by my calculations. So if you've got your Bible, look at, I do want to look at Genesis chapter 3. So God creates Adam and Eve, literally, a real Adam, a real Eve. Adam was made out of a pile of dirt supernaturally by a miracle. And then God created Eve from one of Adam's rib. That was a miracle, scientifically impossible. God did it because He does miracles. He does the impossible. Adam and Eve were real. They were created without sin. They were created innocent. They weren't created perfectly spiritually mature yet, but they were created without sin. They didn't have sin, but they were created with the potential to sin. They were created good. As a matter of fact, they were created very good. And so God gave them some commands, and you can eat from this and eat from that, and here's all your freedom, and you can eat from anything except don't eat from that one tree. And then, sure enough, uh, Satan, who already existed, according to chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, went inside of a snake, a literal snake, a real snake, a demon-possessed snake. Wow, that's scientifically impossible. Yes, it is. But this was a supernatural miracle that God allowed Satan to pull off. Satan is an invisible demon, and he took up the occupancy inside a literal snake. And the snake start, starts talking to Eve. So let's look at this first temptation that really illustrates the truth that James is talking about in James chapter 1 today. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis. Now the serpent or the snake was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And the snake, the talking snake, said to the woman Eve, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Questioning God's word. Verse 2. So the deception kicks in from Satan. Uh, 2. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And then the snake or the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the key in verse 6. When the woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's, by the way, that is the uh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All three are right there in verse 6. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. They sinned. They disobeyed. They deserved the sentence of death. They tried to run from God. God chased them down. And look at verse uh, 12. God confronts Adam. He was culpable. He was guilty. He made a decision. He exercised his own volition. He knew what was right. He did what was wrong. And he's guilty before God. And he's hiding from God in the bushes. God finds him. God's big. Verse 12. And the man said, uh, oh, so God questions him. Verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12. And the man or Adam said, the woman whom thou gavest to me, 
So God says, Adam, you sinned. Why did you sin? And then Adam, instead of doing the honest thing, saying, well, God, I did sin. It was my fault. I was disobedient. I confess. Please forgive me. He didn't do that. He does what? He invents the blame game. He introduces it to humanity. We have perfected it to a science and an art this day. Just like Adam gave us. So Adam, instead of owning up to what he did wrong, Adam does the blame game. And who does he blame? This is horrible. He blames God. Yeah, I, I blew it. But it's the, wo- the woman you gave me, God. This is your fault. Can you imagine? Wow. He blames two people in the same breath. Verse 12. Adam said, the woman you gave me, it's the woman's fault and your fault. The woman you gave me, she gave me the tree and she shoved it in my mouth and made me swallow it. Verse 13. Well, Eve doesn't do any better. Then the Lord God said, okay, now it's your turn, woman. Verse 13. What is this you have done? I don't know if, you've, if you have children, you've probably asked that question to your young children at some point. Or maybe your teenager. What is this you have done? Let them, you're setting them up for the, to see if they'll fess up. You're actually extending grace. What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. So there's the blame game again. The devil made me do it. And we've been using that ever since, haven't we? So let's just blame everybody else except who's guilty, which is us. So let's go back to James Chapter 1. So James wants to cut to the chase and get right to the heart of the matter in dealing with our own sin of why these bad things happen, specifically temptation, why we fall to temptation, why we get entangled in temptation, and ultimately why we succumb to temptation and commit sin. And the natural human response is to blame somebody else. I don't care what the sin is, the sin or the shortcoming or the fault. Uh, Today in our culture it could be not, it's not drunkenness, by the way. It's called alcoholism. We, we've turned it into a medical term or a psychological term because we don't like drunkenness because drunkenness makes it sound too overtly like it's a sin, disobedient behavior, which, by the way, the Bible condemns drunkenness, right? So it is not uncommon today that we speak of the, the alcoholic. Uh, it's not the alcoholic's fault that he gets drunk. It's the store's fault that sold it. No, it's the producer. It's Budweiser's fault. Those evil, greedy, capitalist companies and corporations that made the beer is what we would say today. It's not the drunkard's fault. It's the corporation's fault or whoever made the beer. Uh, the thief, it's not his fault for stealing. He, he's got to blame. It's society's fault because society's put him in a position where he can't make enough money to provide for himself or his family. And therefore, he's got to go out and steal. Therefore, his stealing is justified. So Again, it's blaming somebody else. Uh, murder. Someone who commits murder. We've heard that even recently, as I was saying, on this guy. It's not the murderer's fault. He's a nice guy. He's not evil. He's not wicked. He doesn't have a history of doing this. It must be somebody else's fault. It's the gun's fault or the knife's fault or the two-by-four's fault uh, or his family's fault or the way he was raised or his neighborhood or whatever it is. Oh, the liar? It's not his fault for lying. He was raised that way. It's societal influences. It was his teachers in school that treated him wrongly and incorrectly and were just making up excuses all the time for all these various sins and shortcomings. Uh, Sexual sin, we're hearing that more and more. Any kind of deviance in that regard, whether it's uh, homosexuality or anything else, even on a smaller scale, uh, we can blame other things instead of ourselves and our own behavior and our own volition. Whether it's, oh, that's my hormones' fault or um, it was my upbringing or whatever. As a matter of fact, if you were to categorize all these excuses that people make for their sinful behavior because they're unwilling to own up to their sinful behavior, uh, there are common patterns of who they blame. Uh, They will blame the designer, which is God. Well, God made me do this. Or they'll blame their DNA. I was born this way. So blame the designer. Blame your DNA. Uh, The devil made me do it. Blame the demons. So blame the designer, your DNA, demons. uh, Or my dad made me do it. It was the way my parents raised me. Or, so blame the designer, your DNA, demons, dad, or society. It doesn't begin with a D. Um, society and the way I was cultured and the circumstances made me do it. So these are all very common. And actually, no, James says it's nobody else's fault when it comes to you. It is your fault. It is my fault. And here he spells it out very clearly why that's so. So let's go ahead and look what James has to say regarding the problem of evil. And specifically regarding temptation and sin and when we fall prey to it and succumb to it. Uh, The first point I want to make before I even get to uh, 14 and 15 is point number one there. And that is that sin is the problem of evil. 
I mean, literally for hundreds and thousands of years even, philosophers, they just love to talk about the problem of evil. And they do it from a philosophical point of view, not a theological point of view. And they never come up with, they pose all kinds of suggestions and theories, but they never come up with a definitive answer called the problem of evil. And the reason they never come up with an answer or the correct answer is because they never use the Bible. It's all philosophical, human wisdom as they go through all these uh, processes to try to come up with the answer to the problem of evil. They're not looking. Sin is not even an option. That doesn't explain anything in the philosopher's mind regarding the problem of evil. But if you know the Bible and you're a Christian and you believe that uh, God has revealed truth to us, it's actually a no-brainer. It's really not that hard. It's not the uh, unsolvable philosophical dilemma to answer the question, the problem of evil that shakes the world. No, it's actually a simple answer. Sin is the problem to evil. I did want to read Romans. Just Paul makes two comments that are explicit and clear. Romans 5.12 He talks about Adam as a real man out of Genesis. The historical context is what we just read in Genesis 3. Why are we all messed up? Why do we need a Savior? Why are things so bad? Why is there death? Why is there evil? Answer, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as, the, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world. There it is. That's a problem. And the byproduct of sin, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death is the result of sin. Sin came as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience and been, has been with us for 6,000 years as a result. Sin, bad things are not a byproduct or a freak of evolution. Scripture is clear where it came from. There's personal human culpability. Death through sin and so death spread to all people because all have sinned. That is the problem of evil. And then Paul goes on in Romans 6.23 to say that the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. The deserved repercussions and judgment from God is death. So that's... By way of introduction, that's the answer to the problem of evil. Sin is the problem of evil. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus is the solution and the only solution to sin, isn't He? That's what we believe as Christians. So now let's go ahead and look at uh, three points that I wanted to make out of James' teaching on this in verse, uh, verses 13, 14, and 15. And I would ask you as we begin, uh, how is your homardiology doing, by the way? How's your homardiology? Has anybody asked you that lately? Probably not, because that's a big word with a lot of syllables. It's, it actually, if you study theology, it's one of those categories. Theology, Christology, pneumatology, bibliology, hamartiology. And for my 20 Greek students, it comes from hamartia, hamartia, which means sin. Or literally, it was a term that you would use in archery, where you shoot the arrow and the arrow falls short. Hamartia. And that, uh, the New Testament writers take up that word to describe one nuance of sin is when we fall short. And so homardiology is the study of sin, the theology of sin. And every Christian needs a personal homardiology by which you live your life and live in this world and analyze your own self. So that's why I ask a very personal question. How's your homardiology? But anyway, so let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, this will inform your homardiology and give you a biblical view of yourself regarding sin and temptation. Three points I want to make. And uh, point number two is the place of sin. The place of sin, and the answer is within us. Where does sin come from? James makes it clear. Uh, beginning at verse 13, talking about sin and temptation, because we ask, you know, we struggle with the same... I don't know about you, but this is very common to human behavior. Many times we struggle with the same sins over and over again, don't we? You confess to God when you became a Christian, God, I will never con commit this sin again. A week later, oops, God, I promise this time I'll never commit this sin again. Five years later, God, really, seriously? Or please deliver me from this sin. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. Here's the problem. Here's where sin comes from. Not from God. God has nothing to do with it. It's you. It's me. It's on the inside. It's not the outside. It's not environment. Uh, it's not our hormones. It's the inner soul of who we are. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So that's the issue of sin. It comes from within. 
Each one, verse 14, each one, every single individual is responsible for their own sin. And he's very specific in his terminology to point the finger not at somebody else, but right at us. Each one, each person, each sinner, you are responsible for your own sin. Don't blame somebody else. That's what he's saying. So where is the place of sin? Where does it come from? It comes from within, within inside of it. It is our own doing, our own choice. Uh, a couple of parallel passages regarding this. Look at Romans 7, 14 through 15. This is absolutely profound. If you're not familiar with Romans 7, you need to because Romans 7, I don't know if you knew that you were in the Bible. This is your biography. Romans 7, 14 through 25. And unfortunately, this is my biography too. Uh, Romans 7, 14 through 25. I just want to read through it. This is the Apostle Paul talking about himself. He's talking about himself after he became a Christian, after he's been commissioned as an apostle. He is at the height of his apostolic ministry. He is the quintessential Christian at this time. And this is how he describes himself. He hasn't been freed from sin. This is an honest appraisal supernaturally of himself before God as a saved Christian apostle. And he gives an accurate diagnosis, and this is true of every single one of us if you are a Christian. Starting at verse 14. For we Christians know that the law is spiritual, but I, as a human being, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, I've been freed from my sin legally from Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. What Paul's talking about, practically speaking, the sin nature or sin was not eradicated the moment I became a Christian. As a Christian, sin still lives in me and sin will be in me as a Christian until I die or until Jesus comes again and redeems my body. That's what he means by bondage. It is inescapable. Every single one of us. There are Christian denominations that have this uh, theology where they believe they can become sinless in this life. That is wrong. It's dangerous. Deceptive. Paul says no. Even though I'm an apostle and a Christian, I am in bondage to sin. Verse 15, for that which I, I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. There were times where Paul committed a sin and he knew it was wrong. It violated his conscience. He hated it. He didn't want to do it. But he did it anyway. There's a spiritual battle going on. I hate it. The end of verse 15. 16, Paul says, But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law of God. Scripture, revelation, confessing that God's law, God's Scripture, God's commands is good. My sin is bad. God's commands and requirements are good. Verse 17, Can you relate yet? As you think about yourself, do you ever feel yucky about yourself? That is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The goal is not uh, boosting your self-image. The goal is an honest evaluation of yourself as a sinner saved in Christ. He goes on, verse 17, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Sin lives inside Paul. Sin lives inside you and in me as a Christian. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me in and of myself. The only thing good about me is that Jesus lives in me. But left to myself, nothing good lives in me. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, the unredeemed humanity about me, for the wishing is present in me. When you become a Christian, you have a desire to be obedient, don't you? I didn't care less. I really didn't care about being obedient for the first 19 years of my life. But it was when God saved me and I became a Christian and I was supernaturally changed and God put the Holy Spirit in me and I was exposed to Scripture that for the first time in my life I actually had a desire to do good. A desire to obey God. A hatred towards sin. And that's what Paul is talking about. Your desire. So maybe you're not perfect and maybe you're struggling with the same sin over and over again. The question is... What are your ultimate desires? Do you desire to please God? Do you feel guilty when you commit that sin? That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing when you feel guilt. That's God, the conscience of God, the Spirit of God convicting you. So guilt can be a good thing. Being convicted is a good thing. It's a warning signal from God to help us grow. And so that's what Paul's talking about, the verse, middle of verse 18. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I'm not perfect. Verse 19. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish to do. Verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. This is the second time he said that sin lives in him. Verse 21. I find then the principle, the theological truth that I need to be aware of the rest of my Christian life, that evil is present in me. See, it's the sin within. That is our greatest enemy. This is why legalism doesn't work. 
Because legalism can, you know, okay, you can't touch this and you can't touch that and you can't watch this and you can't watch that and you can't wear that and you can't listen to that and you can't... And all, dealing with all these exteriors of life and the one thing you're not addressing is the sin within. And you actually have to do both. You have to take precautions on the outside. That's why Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Don't go by that drugstore. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't be around those people. Don't be around alcohol. So that's dealing with the outside, but also the, the Bible tells us to deal with the inside first and foremost. That is your greatest problem. And if you're raising children, the issue at hand first and foremost is their heart on the inside, the sin within, not all the externals. That's secondary. That's what Paul's addressing. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good, for I joyfully concur in the law of God. So here he's, he's torn and there's a spiritual battle. And man, I hate doing this sin and I don't want to do this, but I do it and I hate it. And, and he's going back and forth uh, on the inside of his soul. And that's actually the life of a Christian. And you feel torn and you feel like a, a walking hypocrite, don't you? Or at least you should. A guilty, walking hypocrite. That means you've got that spiritual battle going on on the inside. That is a good thing. But in the midst of feeling like a walking hypocrite, we can take joy. And that's what Paul says. When you realize theology properly about this, verse 22, you can just rest and say, for I joyfully concur with the law of God, what Scripture says uh, in the inner man. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am. O wretched woman that I am. O wretched sinner that I am. Have you ever sang that song? I have. That is not an unhealthy song. That's a healthy song. Confess it to God. Oh, wretched man that I am. Father, forgive me of my sins. Keep cleaning me. Help me. Deliver me. Save me. Protect me. Keep washing me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death that covered all of my sins. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ultimately, I'm going to be totally delivered from sin, not just legally, but physically and eternally when I die and go to be with Jesus or at the time of the resurrection should Christ return again. It's our ultimate victory. So this Romans 7, very important, plays to exactly what James is talking about. So let's go back to James chapter 1, verse 14, where James says the problem is sin within. You have sin within. I have sin within. It is alive and well. It is latent. It is always present. It is always there and accessible for Satan to tantalize or just for our own lust to be carried away. So your greatest enemy is not somebody else. My greatest enemy actually is myself in the sin within. When did I become this way? You might be wondering. I hate my sin. When am I going to get rid of this sin? I want to get rid of it. Well, how did I get this way? When did I become this way? Adam, why did you do this to me? Adam and Eve, it's their fault. No, it's not their fault. It came from them, but it's not their fault. But Psalm 51 verse 5 says we were born in sin. We were born with a sin nature. Actually, we were conceived with a sin nature. Psalm 51, verse 5 in the Hebrew. Conceived in a, with a sin nature. That's when it began. So you didn't become a sinner the first time you committed a sin as a one and a half year old and told your mommy, no! You didn't become a sinner then. You were all, he was already a vicious professional sinner and it just manifested itself for the first time because he knows how to talk now. Because he had a nature of a beast that he inherited at conception. So the place of sin within us. Let's go on to point number two. And that is the process of sin. Boy, how does this happen? How do we uh, go about committing acts of sin and patterns of sin? And James, one thing James communicates to us here in verses 14 and 15 is that sin is a process. He says, uh, don't blame God. And then verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived... So now he switches metaphors uh, to a mother getting pregnant and then a mother giving birth as he's describing the process of sin. Very specifically or explicitly. The process of sin conceived in lust. There's a process to when we sin. Sin usually isn't just a spontaneous, oh, how did I do that? Oh, where did that come from? More times than not, it was a process that we went through. Sometimes consciously, sometimes not so consciously, but definitely there was a process that brought us to the point of succumbing to sin and caving 
to the temptation. And that's what he's addressing here. But each one of us, well, how does this happen to us? What is the process of temptation and fall that we go through? Well, each one of us, when we are tempted, and by the way, do you succumb to every temptation you're confronted with in life? Answer, no. You don't have to. There's plenty of temptations that come our way that we don't succumb to. Because some of us are not prone or don't have a propensity to certain kinds of sins. For example, I could use a lot of things. Um, or not a lot of things, but I'm trying to think of something that I'm not really tempted. I'm not terribly, yeah, I'm not tempted by, I'll say, alcohol. Um, so that isn't a major vice in my life that I always have to totally guard against, whereas other people have a propensity toward drunkenness. But I have a propensity towards other sins, or that alcoholic maybe, they, they have no propensity whatsoever to what I struggle with. The point is, we are all common in that we have temptations that come our way. We are unique in terms of what might tempt us more or where our greater vulnerability or weakness is. But every single one of us is tempted continually and all the time. That's what he says in verse 4. It's a present tense verb. Each one is tempted. This, is, this won't brighten your day. He's saying that every one of us is tempted and every one of us is tempted continually all the time. Uh, can't encourage you much with that, right? The rest of your life, you're going to be continually tempted with sin. So... Your sin is going to just be bashing away and battering at you at the door of your heart like a battering ram with temptation. And it will be that way till we die. We can't escape it in this life. That's what he means by each one is tempted, continually being tempted all the time. But here's the process he talks about. Well, how does this happen? Okay, here's all these temptations coming, these fiery darts of temptation. What happens? Well, first, we are carried away. We are, he uses two hunting terms, carried away and then enticed. And they go in order. And both of them could have been used regarding going fishing. Say you're fishing in a river and you know that the fish is deep down under that rock in the dark place in the very deep water. The first thing we've got to do before we catch him on the hook, we've got to lure him out. So there are things that fishermen do to lure him out of his hiding hole. That's the first verb there. Where it says in my New American Standard, first you are carried away. You are, you're wooed away. That's where sin starts. You're wooed away. Where are you wooed away from? You're lured away. Very subtly, very carefully. Well, here's the key. You are lured away or wooed away from safety, from protection, from boundaries, from accountability. That's where uh, you're wooed away from what your conscience tells you is right. And it's very subtle. So first it's just trying to woo us away. Away from protection. Wooing us away from restraint. Then, like a fish, when we're not under the rock anymore, now we're in the open water and now I'm on a rock. uh, And ooh, I see the fish now. He's been, he bought the lie. He's come out into the open. He's now become vulnerable. And now I'm going to stick that hook down there and I'm going to cover it and make it something very enticing like a big juicy worm. That's the next verb he uses in verse 14. But every single one of us first is lured away from the safe boundaries that we know are right. Or walking away from our conscience and what we know is right. And then we are enticed by our own lust. So the next step, first carried away and then enticed. And that's the hook with the worm on it. That's when we start doing what Eve did. First she's listening and she's being lured by Satan away from the area of safety, away from her husband, away from the truth of God, away from the command of God, away from what she knows is right in her conscience. And now Satan has wooed her away, pulled her away from safety. He's got her right where he wants her. And then he entices her. And that's when verse 6 in Genesis 3 when it said, Then she looked at the tree. And it was enticing and desirable for food. And then all of her guttural passions kicked in. And usually that's where this step happens. It happens at the guttural level, the, pa- the level of passions. Not the will, not the mind, not critical thinking, at the passions, at the emotions. And that's where we get trapped. We get wooed away. Oh, then we look. It's appealing. Uh, it appeals to our passions, our flesh, our emotions. And then we bite the hook and then boom, and then we're caught. And that's why he says... Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed, notice, by his own lust. 
my own lust, your own lust. It's the lust within. It's the desire within. By the way, the word for lust at the end of verse 14 is a neutral word. Epithumia. Thumos. Thumia. It just means desire. And then uh, James adds a preposition on the front of the word and he makes it a compound word. And when you add a, a preposition on the front of a noun, you make it intensive or emphatic. And so this is a very strong desire. And the word here, epithumia, can either be a good desire or a bad desire. It depends on the context. Because in Luke 22, verse 15, epithumia, the same word desire is used of Jesus when He said, I greatly, intensely desire to eat the Passover with you, my brothers. Same word. Here, it's a negative context. And that's why some English translations translate it legitimately so as lust. So God has given us desires, sexual desire, desire for food, uh, other legitimate desires. But because of our fallenness and our sin, we abuse God-given desires toward self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, and ultimately toward sin when we cave. So that's how sin happens. That's how bad things happen. So when you're you know, wringing your hands and wondering, wow, how did I get into this mess? And how did this happen to me? And God, why would you do this to me? And it's my uh, upbringing, whatever. No, it is the sin within. It was our own lust. We didn't put boundaries on our lust. There was no accountability with our lust. We didn't keep it at bay. We practiced certain behaviors that led us to that end more easily. So it's our fault. That's what he's saying here. But each one is tempted when he's carried away, lured and enticed by his own lust. Actually, desire. Desire is not always a bad thing, but here he calls it his own lust, our self-centered desire, our egocentric desire. It's a kind of lust. He defines what it is. This is a bad, evil desire. It's an illegitimate, sinful desire to fulfill ourself. This isn't God's desire or holy desire, Christ-like desire, biblical desire. And that's where it comes from, from within. And that is the process. So the way this works really is the temptation comes along, which is neutral, or actually it could be bad, but temptation comes along for everybody. And then the first thing we do is it appeal, or it's luring us out because it appeals to us. And then we respond to the temptation sometimes by letting our guard down, by violating conscience, by shirking accountability, by isolating ourselves. whatever it is. Now we're in striking distance. And then it becomes really appealing to us. And then we then. So after that emotional level, then we start thinking about it. Ooh, I'm in this situation. OK, this has come upon me. OK, what if I do that? And this is where the rationalization and justification comes as sinners in our mind. So it goes from emotions to now it's an intellectual battle. And as Christians, it's really easy to say, well, I'll be forgiven. Jesus is still forgiving. Right. He died for all my sins. That's a common one that Christians will use. Or, oh, it's just a little sin. Or I'm actually getting better in this area. So just this one time. So then there's this intellectual battle that can go on. And in the midst of that emotional appeal of sin and then the intellectual battle, deception can enter in. And this is where Satan can come in as the tempter, as the one who blinds, as the deceiver to muddy the waters for us, to distort our thinking, to cause us to bite the bait. That's what verse 16 says. Do not be deceived. Who is the deceiver? It is Satan himself. He roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Romans 12 says he is the, the accuser of the brethren. Genesis chapter 3, he tempted Eve. It wasn't his fault, but he did tempt. But that's why James later is going to say, resist the devil and he will flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. That's a promise. That's good news for the Christian. So you've got, it starts with the emotional level, the appeal to the baser components of what a sinful human is all about with the emotions and then it goes into an intellectual battle of justifying the sin and violating our conscience and then it ends in actually committing the sin which is an act of the will, a volitional decision to choose to do it, to choose to pursue it and even strategize to get there to the fulfillment of that sin. classic example is in 2 Samuel, I think chapter 12 or 11, where David committed adultery with Bathsheba and read that entire chapter. And you can just see the process of sin, the progression of sin. going for, and Where it began with David at the very guttural, emotional, passionate, fleshly level. That's where it began. And then when that kicked in, then he's got this 
Then he starts thinking about things and strategizing. Oh, okay, hmm, let me uh, send one of my servants to go and inquire and find out who she is and get to know her a little bit and see what's going on there and assess the situation. And all the while he's thinking about this, and then they do it, and then in the end he just decides, I'm going to commit adultery with this woman, and he did. So he went from the emotional to the intellectual to the volitional. That's how we fall into sin. The reason that is so important as James lays it out here is because that is the exact opposite of how we are supposed to behave as Christians. We, don't, we are not to be driven by our emotions and our passions, are we? It's just the opposite. We are supposed to be driven and living our life based on volition, which is actually formed and fed by what we know is true, the truth of the Word of God. So ahead of time we determine, I will honor God, I will obey God, I will resist sin, I will make myself accountable... And you make these resolute commitments you know are true by using an act of the will. And then we continue to feed our mind intellectually with the truth of the Word of God, renewing our mind to help build a resistance against sin and building boundaries that will protect us. And as a result of right volition and right thinking comes right actions and obedience. And as a result, the blessing of God and the end byproduct of all of that are emotions. So emotions are supposed to follow everything else we do, not at the beginning of everything we do that drives our life. And that's what Satan does, and that's what sin does. It turns everything on its ear, upside down, of how we're supposed to live life. So if you see a person who lives their life by emotions, by passion, by guttural, fleshly satisfaction, then you see the antithesis of what God says a Christian should be, living in obedience to His Word and the truth. So this is a great strategy that James is laying out for us for the truth. That's why Paul said and pleaded with the people in Romans 12, keep renewing your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts on meditating on truth, thinking on truth. That's why the psalmist could say the same thing. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, O God. Thy word I have hid in my heart. I have memorized Scripture. I know what it means. I consume it. I take it in. To transform my thinking to guard against sin. That's the biblical strategy of resisting sin. And so hopefully I just illustrated for you the process of sin conceived in our own lust, our own desires. And then finally, number four there, the product of sin, the end result, the byproduct of sin. And he just says categorically, uh, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived. So lust is the mother. What is lust conceived? Conceived baby sin. Sin is the baby. And then the end result and the byproduct actually is a miscarriage in death. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or comes to fruition, it brings forth death. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Well, you might be asking, well, what kind of death? That's a great question. He doesn't really answer it. But we do know that death in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, death first and foremost means separation, separation from God. Sinners being separated from a holy God. So death means separation. And then it's applied three ways throughout Scripture. Death can be uh, first for Adam and Eve. When they committed sin, they were separated from God spiritually. They broke their relationship with God. Fellowship was broken with God. So death is spiritual separation. And that's why every single sinner that's born in the world, we are born uh, children of wrath. We are born enemies of God. We are born not saved. God is not our Father when we're born. We are born enemies of God. We are born sinful, worthy of death. And that's why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again spiritually. So death refers to spiritual separation from God and the only way to part that chasm is to be spiritually reborn. And that's becoming a Christian. That's believing in the gospel. And you believe it in this life. You confess your sins to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising for me. Thank you for living on high as the Lord of the earth for me. Please forgive me. And if you really believe that, in that moment of time, boom, Jesus Christ will save you of your sins. You'll be born again and all your sins will be forgiven. And you will have overcome spiritual death. But that's one death in the Bible, spiritual death, and then there's physical death, physical separation. That also happened with Adam and Eve. First, they committed sin, 
They were spiritually separated from God. Their relationship was broken. And then at the end of Genesis 3, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden to show a physical separation. You cannot have the physical blessings that I want to give you. And He also pronounced the decree. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die physically. And the moment that Adam and Eve ate the food, they began to die literally physically in their body. Because up to that time... They weren't dying physically. Their cells were intact. Their cells were not dying. The very moment they ate, their, their body literally began to decay. That's what the New Testament said. We are dying. We are in the process of physical death. Every single one of us will die. Why do we die? Because of sin. We will suffer physical separation. There's a physical consequence to sin. Every single one of us must undergo. Well, what about Jesus? He never sinned. He physically died. Why did the God-man physically die? Well, because... He willingly came down as our substitute. He took our sin on Himself and He became sin and sin must die. That's why Jesus, who was the God-man, died. He died in our place even physically and rose again gloriously in a resurrection body so that we might have a glorious, sinless, eternal resurrection body just like Christ's someday. So there's spiritual death and then there's physical death which we all must undergo. And then finally, there's eternal death. And the book of Revelation talks about this explicitly. And that's really eternal hell. That's eternal separation from God for willingly, knowingly rejecting Jesus Christ and His Gospel. It is a conscious choice. It is a deserved punishment. So three kinds of death in the Bible. Spiritual, physical, and eternal. And well, which one is James talking about? Well, it could be all three. It brings forth death. Even if you're a Christian, if you commit sin, it brings forth death. Anytime we commit sins, this is scary to think about, but we need to think about it. Every time we commit an act of sin, whether it's gossip, um, arguing with somebody, fighting with somebody, uh, stealing, telling little white lies, whatever it is, as Christians, every time we commit a sin, we are planting a seed. And we are planting a seed. We are planting and sowing to the flesh. And as a result, we shall reap from the flesh, and that's what the book of Galatians says to Christians. If you sow seeds of disobedience to sin to the flesh, we also will reap the consequences from the flesh. So a lot of times we find ourselves in hard and difficult situations that we are in for whatever reason or consequences that have come upon us. And many times that is a result of our own sinful choices where we invested in our own flesh. And for some, that could be death. I mean, even the Apostle Paul talks about there were some in the Corinthian congregation who died a physical death because their sin was so heinous or was unconfessed or it wasn't dealt with by the church. And here they are having communion and people are dying physically because they were sowing to their flesh. So the death could refer to more than one thing there. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then finally he says in verse 16, do not be deceived. And that doesn't just mean, you know, don't be deceived by the devil. We can deceive ourselves. You know that? There is a thing called self-deception. I'm pretty good at deceiving myself. Because I know for a fact I was a professional at deceiving myself. Because uh, a few years ago, probably five years, my mom sent me a whole bunch of pictures that she had from me growing up. And there's like a couple of them where I don't have my shirt on and I'm like 14 and I'm in front of the mirror flexing. And I look like, like a skeleton with anorexia. And at the time, I thought I was buff. It's like that, it, that was one deceived junior hire. So I have vulnerability in that area of deceiving myself. It's not just the devil's fault. But we can be deceived by the world. Uh, we can be deceived by sin itself. Sin deceives us. Satan deceives us. Self deceives us. But he says, be cautioned. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. Christian. And with that, let's look at the personal applications. There's a lot we could say, but just a few. Uh, number one, don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, uh, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What was he saying? Don't trust yourself. Even if you're a Christian. Two, be accountable to another person. And sometimes it means being accountable to more than one person. Maybe you're accountable to your Spouse and marriage, but I'm convinced we need more accountability than that. We're pretty good at hiding areas of our life from people. We need accountability and close accountability, honest accountability. Uh, number three, confess your sins daily to Jesus. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Present tense. If we keep on confessing our sins, meaning we're going to keep on sinning. Keep on confessing your sins. Jesus continues to be faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, that needs to be a daily prayer. In the Our Father prayer, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our sins. We should be cleaning house every single day. God, forgive me of my sin today. And be specific about it. Uh, number four, pray daily for protection from sin, from Satan, from the world, from self. Pray daily. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Deliver us from evil. Luke says the evil one. Matthew says evil. That could be evil from anywhere. It could be my own sin. God, help me. Protect me from myself. Save me from myself. Uh, with that, I want to close. If you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Pastor Scott's been going through the book of Hebrews now, I believe, in chapter 7. So they covered this already. Great passage. So if you feel kind of yucky by your own sin this morning, that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's the Spirit of God sensitizing your conscience. But what you need, you need to act on that yucky feeling with confession, number one. Confessing your sin. But also realizing, recognizing God's forgiveness for you in Christ and His death. He has, by virtue of His death, He has cleansed your sin. You are white as snow. He has forgotten your sin. East is from the west by virtue of His death and resurrection because He is the great high priest. So let me close with this. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Since then we, Christians, have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in order that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a great truth? Let's go ahead now and we'll bow to the Father, the throne of grace, Plead for His mercy. Plead for His grace. Thanking Him for Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension on high on behalf of us sinners. Father, we do thank You for this great truth in, in Hebrews 4. Lord Jesus, thank You for being a great high priest. Thank You for being a trailblazer, paving a way to heaven for sinners. And You did it by Your willful, perfect life You lived, fulfilling the law, your willful death on the cross absorbing the eternal supernatural wrath of a holy God and by rising from the dead, conquering death, sin, and the consequences of it, reigning on high as our blessed mediator, high priest, Savior, brother. Thank You that we can continue to claim forgiveness of sin in Your name by virtue of Your work and live with a clean conscience. And God, uh, give our conscience sensitivity, a hatred towards sin. Stir up the Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us and help us more and more to resist sin when we see it for what it is. We thank You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.